You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good evening, church. It's really good to see all of you and um, to, to be able to join together in worship this evening. Just really blessed by Adam and Scarlett and Rachel and David's leadership uh, from the stage in, in music. And uh, I pray you were as well. It's just a real gift today to be able to, uh, to have that kind of space uh, to pour out our hearts before the Lord. And so I hope that's a blessing to you. We're going to do it more after we're done here. So I'm going to hurry up and do that so we can keep singing. Um, but it's a real joy to be with you um, and to open the scriptures with you. I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans 15. We are going to be looking at Romans 15, verses 1 through 13, uh, continuing this series we have been in, in the book of Romans for a long time. We're getting close to landing the plane. We're going to read this text. We'll pray and we'll jump in. Romans 15, verses 1 through 13, God's Word says this, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let us please, let, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask as we come to you this evening and we open your words, we hear you speak, that you would move in power through the working of the Holy Spirit to effect change in our hearts by the person and work of Jesus Christ, that we would follow his example to walk in love, to give of ourselves for the sake of others, to welcome others just as we have been welcomed. Help us as we 
hear these words and reflect upon their application that you would do what only you are able to do, which is to make those things real to us. May it be for your glory and for our good. We ask in Jesus's name, amen. So as I mentioned, we are continuing tonight our series in the book of Romans. And ever since we have begun looking at Romans 12 earlier this fall, and through the chapters that follow, we have been asking this question, what difference does the gospel of Jesus Christ make in our daily lives? What difference does it make? Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at Romans 14, where we have considered what it means to live in a Christ-like way alongside others with differing convictions and consciences regarding non-essential matters. Our text today, Romans 15, verses 1 through 13, continues and concludes this argument. Shay looked at the first part of Romans 14, the second part, and this is actually kind of the third part. Even though the chapter division starts here, uh, most folks would recognize that this is all part of the same section. So there's three parts to this. And the essential breakdown of those three parts is this. In Romans 14, verses 1 through 12, we learn that we are not to pass judgment on those with differing convictions. In Romans 14, verses 13 through 23, we learned that we are not to put a stumbling block before a weaker brother or sister, those whose consciences are marked by greater sensitivity around issues of Christian liberty. And what we're gonna learn this evening is that we are to bear with the failings of the weak as we follow the example of the Lord Jesus. What I want to do this evening is to consider what it means. What does it mean to bear with the failings of the weak? The second thing that we wanna look at is what is the fruit that's going to be present in our lives as we work towards this goal? How will we know we're moving in the right direction? What are the things that we can expect to see? And third, how does God's word equip us to understand situations like what we see in Romans 14 and 15 in light of our hope in the gospel? And so first, what does it mean to bear with the failings of the weak? Verses one and two give us the main idea for this passage. It says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. There's five things that I want us to understand from this statement in verses one and two. First is this, that bearing with the failings of the weak is an obligation. The verb here, we have an obligation, is placed first in the word order in the Greek. And all you need to know is that word order in Greek denotes emphasis. If something is at the front of a sentence, it means that it is an important idea that the author is seeking to lay before us so that we would understand its significance. What it's saying in effect is that everything that follows is something that's required. It's an obligation, it is not optional. Second is that bearing with, to bear with, does not mean merely walking patiently with others in their convictions and conscience scruples. It does mean this, but it means more. It also describes a kind of carrying that the strong are to undertake 
on behalf of the weak. To bear with actually means to ease the burden of conscience for the weaker Christian, to help them as we seek to minister God's truth in the gospel. We're gonna come back in a moment to what this means, to help them. Third is that the positive exhortation to bear with is contrasted with a negative prohibition, not to please ourselves. And this does not mean that we are somehow to avoid things that bring us pleasure as if experiencing happiness or delight is a wrong that we are to resist. But rather it means, as we saw in Romans 14, that we do not assert our rights and privileges at the expense of a weaker brother or sister. We're not to put ourselves first. That's what it means, not to please ourselves. The fourth is that those who are strong may also have areas where they are weak and vice versa. Paul includes himself here. We who are strong, he gives it a first person plural. We have an obligation, those who are strong, But elsewhere, in places like 2 Corinthians 12, Paul writes about his weaknesses. And in fact, he says that it is in those weaknesses that God's power is made perfect. And in the same way, you and I have certain areas where we are weak and areas where we are strong. And the fifth is that pleasing our brother or sister, that weaker brother or sister has a very specific end. It is their good. It is their building up to maturity. It is not acquiescing to a subjective opinion based upon what a person wants, but rather what they need to grow. It's very specific. So these five characteristics, they combine to provide us with two principles. The first is this, those who are strong, in the areas where they are strong, are called by God, not only to forbearance, but to help carry or ease the burdens of those who are weak in their areas of weakness, so that they might grow to strength in their understanding and application of gospel truth in their lives. Those who are strong where they are strong are called to help ease the burden of those who are weak where they are weak, so that they might become strong. The second principle follows it. We who are weak in areas of our weakness should eagerly embrace and accept the help and ministry of the strong so that we too can grow in strength and find peace and hope in the truths of the gospel for our lives. Those are the two principles that help us understand what does it mean to bear with the failings of the weak? But verse three then gives us the example that we are to follow as we seek to put these two principles into practice. For Christ did not please himself, but as it was written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Jesus took on the weaknesses of others in order to make them strong. Paul here quotes Psalm 69, which is all about suffering and sacrifice and God's help and weakness, which is then the basis for how we are to view our own experiences as strong in relation to the weak. And so we have the principles as well as the example. As we have seen in looking at Romans 14, there were some specific circumstances that Paul described that made those principles relevant. But there are also significant places that these principles are relevant for us today. I wanna talk about three examples. We could talk about a bunch more just for the sake of times, for your good, our joy all together. Let's limit those things. But let me give you three. 
Okay, first is that many of us struggle with questions of identity in relationship to others. And the example that I have in mind is the socially anxious person who genuinely loves others, but's always stayed on the sidelines of his or her community. Typically, such a person assumes that the insecurity or the introversion or the shyness that they experience is simply part of their makeup. It's just who they are. About a dozen years ago, this is how I would have described myself. My wife and I were members here and we applied to be group leaders. And one of the questions that I was asked on our application was, what are some areas of weakness in your life and in your leadership? And I remember very specifically what I said because it connects to the conversation that followed. I said, occasional struggles with insecurity. For whatever reason, and I'll never forget this interview, Brandon Barker, who was a pastor here, who did not struggle with insecurity, he asked me about this response, and he said to me, let me encourage you to put your fear of man to death now before it becomes a life-dominating issue. And I was like, bro, I just met you. Brandon used a term I had never really heard before to describe what I always assumed was simply a way of being. Insecurity is a term that we often use to describe some sense of insufficiency in our lives. We don't feel like we measure up. We want other people to affirm us. We are afraid of others' opinions. The fear of man is God's way of describing this common problem. The fear of man, according to scripture, is the wrongful authority that I give to someone else to determine my sense of well-being. It's me caring about others' opinions to such an extent that it influences my choices and my motivations in life. And it can spill over into my relationships with other people. And it can lead to people-pleasing, emotional dependency, and several other problems. Almost always, these experiences are actually the symptoms of a person's heart who is uncertain about their standing with God or with other people and who has responded in ways designed either to curry favor or to protect themselves against potential loss. The fear of man, if you have known it, is an exhausting thing to deal with. Proverbs 29, 25 captures very well the effect of this struggle when it says, the fear of man lays a snare. We feel stuck, we feel caught, we feel like there's no way out. But the other side of it's so beautiful. The one who trusts in the Lord is safe. What I thought of as merely an innate weakness in my life and which had kept me from freedom in Christ was actually something God intended to change. And he used Brandon, who was very strong in that area, as an agent of change. He ended up being my boss here when I was hired on our staff, and he modeled both forbearance as I continued to struggle in this way and was learning how to work through it, but he also helped to facilitate growth. This is an example of the strong helping the weak. Second, is the reality that many of us face regular and persistent temptation in our lives that can often overwhelm us. I have in mind those of you in this room who in your fight against sexual sin, whether it's pornography or physical relationships with other people or some combination therein, you have gotten to the point where your entire life is oriented around avoiding temptation. 
I think about the relatively universal experiences of you men in here, but I also know that it's not limited to you. And here's what it looks like. There's been some reckoning in your life as it relates to your struggle with pornography or sexual sin. You experience brokenness, you turn to God in repentance, and you resolve to walk in godliness. However, because this problem has been in your life for so long, and because Satan wants to derail any work of change in your life, your relief from temptation is short-lived. It seems like everywhere you turn then is some opportunity for your heart to return to a state of active desire. It could be an image on a website, an interaction with a coworker, or a glance at someone on the coffee shop or on the running trail. So you go underground. You seek to avoid any possibility of experiencing temptation. You keep your interactions brief. You keep your eyes to the ground. You confess every stray thought and you secretly wish everyone else would just understand your problem and cater their lives to help you walk in righteousness. And though such vigilance is admirable in some respects, it's actually unsustainable and unloving to others ill-advised, and ultimately unrealistic. You and I will always be subject to things that can lead to temptation. The weakness in such a situation is to assume that temptation comes from out there instead of from within here. And this leads us to protect ourselves more than pursuing love for others. It seeks uh, It leads us to seek to impose our weaknesses on others. God calls us to a different way of doing things. The strong have come to understand that when it comes to temptation, we must allow Christ to reform our hearts and with it, our desires. That we must strive to help the weak to endure temptation with patience so that they can begin to experience the freedom that God can provide, that They're called to help others understand how truly to love so that we can lay aside the shackles of those weaknesses. The strong step in to equip weaker brothers or sisters in how they fight the ensnarement of sin with the power of faith rather than of self-effort. A third example is that all of us navigate conflict to some degree or another, sometimes without easy resolution. Many times the initiating cause of the conflict is a preference or a conviction, like what we've seen in Romans 14, but that remains unexamined and is actually the kind of weakness that Paul describes. We who are weak in such situations do not have the self-awareness to question our own assumptions. We have forgotten that our hearts are deceitful and cannot always be trusted to tell us the truth. Strangely, it is sometimes in those areas where we most strongly assert our perspective and defend our position that we are most weak and prone to error. And scripture actually hinted this in several places. Proverbs 29, 11 tells us that the fool gives full vent to his spirit. James 3 will tell us that where jealousy and selfish ambition are present, we can also expect there to be disorder and chaos. I don't know about you, but many times I have found myself on one side of conflict feeling so strongly about the rightness of my convictions only to later discover how blind I had actually been. 
So just a caution to us as we navigate conflict. It is not without purpose that Proverbs 19.11 says that good sense makes one slow to anger. The weak are often easily angered. They are quick to point out problems, quick to fight. We need the presence of mind of the strong to reestablish peace and unity through their patient illustration and forbearance in our lives. So all three of these examples have in common areas of weakness that we may experience. Other people are stronger, and we are called both to help and to bear with those who struggle in these ways, while also not allowing our own weaknesses to determine the rules of engagement. So when all of this happens, when bearing with the failings of the weeks happens in this way, in the example of Christ, something wonderful occurs, which is the next point. What is the fruit that will be present as we work towards these goals? We're gonna skip ahead to verses five through seven, but we'll come back to verse four. Verses five through seven say this. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The fruit that is to come as we minister to one another in these ways is marked by three characteristics, endurance, encouragement, and harmony. I'm taking these from verse five. Endurance, as the strong bear with the weak and the weak receive the ministry of the strong, a natural form of endurance should result. This is similar to the kind of maturity that Paul describes in Ephesians 4.13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Endurance, ultimately is one of the key evidences of strength in the life of a Christian. Second is encouragement, that when the strong bear with the failings of the weak, they are to do so in a spirit of coming alongside to help with the problems that another person faces. This term encouragement carries with it this kind of meaning. It describes comfort and active help and a willingness to lay down one's preferences for the good of another. It is the way that God deals with us, as we saw in verse three, and it is therefore the way we are called to walk alongside others. And third is harmony. In the end, what unites all of us is the life that we share through our union with Jesus. As we minister to one another, what should result is the increasing experience of peace and harmony and mutual devotion to Christ expressed through life in one body. This is the heart of verse seven, to welcome one another all because we recognize and celebrate the way that Jesus has welcomed us. He was strong when we were weak so that by his weakness, we could become strong. But here's the reality. Even though we see the admonition to bear with the failings of the weak in verses one through three, and even though we see the fruit that is to result through endurance, encouragement, and harmony, we still often struggle to know how exactly we are to accomplish these things in a meaningful way. And that brings us to our third point, which is how does scripture equip us to live in such a pursuit, all in light of the hope that we have through the gospel? How does scripture equip us to do this? I wanna to return to the example of conflict that we mentioned earlier. 
Many times we find ourselves in conflict with others and the experience can be some, become so consuming that we can only see what is right in front of us. Does that feel familiar to you? Okay, there we go. All right, we'll call in response. You guys okay? Doing good? It's beautiful outside today, isn't it? The Cowboys lost, right? Who cares? Um, the people who are at the 9 a.m. service, that's who. Um, okay, back to, the, back to the sermon. Okay. Many times we find ourselves in conflict with others and we just get consumed by what's right in front of us. I call this being stuck in the weeds. Okay, of course, that's not a term unique to me, but I did introduce the term brunch to my sons the other day and I almost took credit for it. Of course, a common phrase, but I am using it in a way to understand what can happen if we try to bear with the failings of the weak or we try to receive the ministry of the strong and the gospel is not the foundation for our efforts. We can tell if we are stuck in the weeds if our focus is only on the circumstantial, circumstantial issue at hand. So for those three examples that we mentioned earlier, this would be the relative shyness or insecurity that we feel when we are around other people. It would be that experience of sexual temptation and our efforts to avoid it, or it would be that initial problem that caused the conflict between two people that becomes the focus of all conversation. It's not that any of those things are irrelevant, but rather they are not the ultimate problem from God's point of view. The whole argument of Romans 14 is that it is the absence of faith that gives rise to the scruples that we experience and that trouble so many of our consciences. And in the same way, these current problems have more to do with our own difficulty in appropriating Christ's work for ourselves or from our lack of reliance on the means of grace that God has given to us for growth or the misapplying of right and necessary steps that God gives us to move towards reconciliation with other people. So the answer, as Paul describes it, begins with what he says in verse four. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through, encourage, through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Paul takes a step back and he reflects upon the nature of scripture and its purpose for our lives. God has given his word to instruct us so that we could grow as he intends for us to grow. And this includes rightly understanding the nature of the problems that we face. It means developing an accurate diagnosis for why we are actually weak. It means helping us to see that the right response is not to impose our scruples on other people, but to gladly and thankfully receive the ministry of the strong so that our confidence in the gospel and its implications would grow all the more. When we are stuck in the weeds, we only see the problem as it exists in our frame of vision. We lack the necessary perspective that helps us to see what God might be trying to do on the whole. He's at work to transform us more and more into the image of Christ. And this actually happens through the difficulties and the problems that we face, not despite them or around them. Moreover, he is at work to form a people for himself 
which then is to reveal and display his glory to the world around us. When we are stuck in the weeds, we become so focused on the problems that are in front of us that not only does our personal grasp of the gospel suffer, but so too does our same witness of that gospel falter in our community. Recently, Russell Moore, public theologian with Christianity Today, former head of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, mercifully shortened to the ERLC, lamented that one of the church's failures in America is not the acceptance or promotion of wrong theology, but rather its apparent refusal to live according to the orthodoxy that it claims to believe. He made this point in observing the lack of love and charity that exists between so many groups within American Christianity whose theology differs only in small degrees, but whose unity is being torn asunder by division and slander and vitriol. This example is in many ways characteristic of the kinds of struggles that will endure if people or groups remain stuck in the weeds when seeking to deal with problems like what Paul is describing in Romans 15. So what's the answer then? What we see in the remainder of this passage in verses 8 through 13 is an appeal It's an appeal to the comprehensive scope with which the scriptures witness to the work of Christ and thus demonstrating the relevance that it has for the kinds of problems that were being faced in the Roman church as well as the kinds of problems that we face today. So in verses eight and nine, we read, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Paul reminds his readers once more of the great work that God has undertaken to unite such disparate groups of people as Jew and Gentile. If God is able to bridge so great a chasm as existed between these two groups of people who were separated not only by religion, but by culture and ethnicity, so too can he equip believers to reconcile their minor differences or overcome their weaknesses through endurance, encouragement, and harmony. So many times, our relative discouragement at the problems we are facing and what seems to be the hopelessness of our situation, it's actually a reflection of a failure to consider all that God has accomplished in the gospel. Did you hear that? That discouragement and the hopelessness that you feel is often reflective of the smallness with which you view the gospel. Paul is making an appeal for us not to forget why it was that Jesus came to the earth. He came to become a servant in order to demonstrate the truthfulness of God's promises and to extend mercy to those in need, to declare the incredible riches of the strength of his glory, but also the availability and accessibility of his compassion and his mercy. The rest of this passage includes quotations from each of the major sections of the Old Testament to show that it is all throughout the scriptures. We see 2 Samuel 22 and Deuteronomy 32 from the law. 
We see Psalm 117 from the wisdom literature. We see Isaiah 11 from the prophets. Paul is pulling from such a wide body of references to demonstrate how far reaching the redemptive work of Christ actually is. It is as if he is saying, why would you remain stuck in the weeds when God has done something far greater, which is seen all throughout his word and which now informs the way that you handle day-to-day problems? Why would you remain entrenched in conflict in all of your differences when God has done what he has done? So regarding the examples that we discussed earlier and in particular of conflict, this means taking the necessary steps away from the immediacy of our situation so that we can reflect on the overall hope that we have in Christ. It means humbling ourselves, looking for the blind spots that are there and which inform the weaknesses of our hearts. It means allowing the ministry of the strong to have its right effect, to lead us to greater faith and confidence in God's work in our lives. And it means remembering the call on our own lives to unity so that our witness to others may not be hampered because of the divisions that exist between us and ultimately represent a lack of trust in the Lord. So one major application then from all of this as it relates to these problems, is to develop the kind of reliance on the word of God, such that it is the very first place that we turn to when difficulty strikes. And it is the place from which we draw wisdom and instruction and direction for how we are to respond. Why do I say this? Too often we step into conflict, like what we have been describing, We do it without first considering what scripture teaches. We engage with a weaker brother or sister out of our own annoyance rather than from a desire to help them and to bear patiently with them. We respond to the loving counsel of the strong with indignation that someone would presume to speak into our lives. We become focused on the harmful actions of another without considering the way that Jesus willingly took on the reproaches of his enemies. The fruit of such processes, if this is our perspective, it doesn't help us, it doesn't help the other person, nor does it reflect the heart of the Lord. But instead of these self-seeking and self-pleasing attitudes, Scripture guides us towards love and humility, and patience. But all of these only become possible to the extent that we see how they connect to God's redemptive work. So to put it another way, the more that we understand the reality that in Jesus Christ, all will be restored, that resurrection will be fully known, that what is broken will be remade, the more we will be able to engage in long-suffering with the weaknesses and troubles of others. And conversely, if we see these characteristics lacking in our lives, it tells us something significant about where our hope is. In the end, this is the thrust of verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. We can have hope because God is the God of hope. We can experience joy and peace with others because of our faith in the God who is reconciling all things to himself through Jesus Christ. 
We can abound in hope as we rely on the Holy Spirit in our daily difficulties. So I wanna return to that simple summary that I gave us at the beginning of our time. We're to bear with the failings of the weak and so follow the example of our Lord. We are to allow ourselves to be helped and so receive the ministry of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we need your help to put into practice what we have heard from your word this evening. We pray that by your spirit, you would guide us, help us to see what we need to see in our own hearts this evening. Help us to respond with faith and the willingness to pursue what you would have us pursue and that you would empower us in all of those things with the assurance of what has already been accomplished through Christ and what you empower us to do by your spirit. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.